Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for joining. Today, as we begin episode 37, which is really the 38th class in the series, because before number one we did a, an introduction or a prologue. So we are going to do a little bit of a different kind of class today, and that's because the material we'll be studying it has a different focus we introduce the entire series by speaking about betachem, about trust. We talked quite a bit of where trust comes from. We addressed a little bit of what it is, why it was important. And then we began to move our way through Rabbeinu Bechaya's list of the benefits that are to be obtained specifically through building betachen and nurturing and developing a profound sense of trust in Hashem. In each of the benefits, the author with cross-reference verses and oftentimes narratives that are lifted from the tapestry of Hashem's nevuah, of the, the biblical traditions, and even on the rare occasion, leaning on the words of our sages. Each of these required study. It wasn't really clear, certainly not at the outset, as to why the author would quote a particular verse or a string of verses in an irregular order. We spent really quite a bit of time delving over these details and trying to appreciate and understand both the literal and the nuanced deeper messaging. And we learned quite a bit about Betochen as we moved our way through the Peticha, the introduction. At this point, Rabbeinu Bechaya has made the case multiple times. You should be convinced. By now, you should be really keen on learning more about Betochen and dedicating yourselves to developing it. At this point, Rabbeinu Bechaya introduces the matrix, the seven keys, as I'm calling them, to unlocking or unraveling this manuscript. So that is to say, in previous classes or previous episodes, we spoke primarily about betachen, about trust in Hashem, and the various benefits that would hail from or derive out of having that betochen, out of successfully nurturing this trusting attitude and approach towards our Creator. In today's class, we're not really going to talk about betochen, about trust in Hashem. Instead, we're going to talk about the book, about the Shara betochen. It's important because it'll give you a sense of where we're going. How does this book unfold? Why are the chapters divided in a particular system and order? And how are we going to cover all of our bases? So I don't know if you'll learn about Betachen today. 
I do know you'll learn about the book. We'll be concluding the introduction to Shara B'Tochen. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back. We'll be back with the series of Living with Certainty and Learning to Trust, Be'ezrat Hashem, as we begin to delve into the seven chapters of the Shara B'Tochen itself. So with that little introduction to the end of the introduction, and no further ado, let us begin. In conclusion, having provided a fair sampling, in fact, a, a pretty wide range of the spiritual and material benefits, things that will necessarily help us in our quest to fulfill our destiny, our purpose, our mission, the reason for our having been sent to assume a terrestrial existence, the reason for the neshama having been sent into this reality altogether. Having betochen will be extremely advantageous in achieving those things. Having betochen, we learned, is also going to be extremely advantageous in living a life that's peaceful, tranquil, enjoyable, material benefits. Not only will it benefit us in our pursuit of avodat Hashem, this is just a good way to live. In fact, Rabbeinu Bachai has argued it's the best way to live. Nobody wants stress, angst, worry, concern, anxiety, fear. None of these are notions that we rush to embrace. These are things we'd love to avoid. Only betachen can free you from these things. So the Chavis Alvavis, Rabbeinu Bachaya, is now going to close the introduction by giving us the structure of the actual Shar HaBetochen. He's going to outline the content of the seven chapters that comprise the actual gate of trust. So let us begin to delve inside and to hear from the author himself. The Chevon Shebe'arti. And since I have richly explained, I have clarified. Mitoy alois habitochen be'elikim, vahana ois of batoira. The benefits of trusting in God and what you stand to gain in Torah. Now, I want to stop you right there. Up until now, Rabbeinu Bechaye introduced the first five benefits as saying that this was in spiritual pursuit. And then afterwards he says, now I'm going to tell you about the things that are of material concern. And here, Rabbeinu Bechaye is suddenly speaking about not Tiyelas Abetochen Ba'avedas Hashem or Ba'oilam, as he spoke about before. In fact, the words he used before was Be'inyan Hatayra, in the realm or area of Torah. And then he talked about Toyalais Ba'oilam, benefits in a worldly or material sense. 
Rabbeinu Bechayi talks about the benefits from trusting in Hashem. These are both material benefits and spiritual benefits. And he adds something. That which you derive pleasure or enjoy, which is the typical translation of the word Hana'a. Hana'a usually means having not only a benefit, but actually having some kind of, I suppose, pleasure or enjoyment. So what does that mean? The Pas Lechem, commenting on these very words, he says, Toyelas, a benefit, the benefits are primarily avoiding pitfalls, ruling out the things that could eat away at our foundation or freeze or atrophy us, disabling us from fully functioning. That's not a pleasure. That's the removal of a likely obstacle. But Hana'isaf, he says, is something different. He says, you will enjoy, you will uh, eat the fruits. How? How will, you, how will you actually receive something as a result of betochen? Pas Lechem says, we have learned how betochen can make time, can free us up, can enable us to be unencumbered so we can properly focus on our spiritual pursuit, our study of Torah, our performance of mitzvahs, living life in, in a way that we can best enjoy its experiences because we aren't burdened. We aren't eaten from within with worry and anxiety, anger and angst. But all of that is taking away things which could prevent us. These are what you call preventative benefits. What does betachan actually do for you? Oh, it does quite a bit, because we've learned that through betochen, we learned that betochen is the convention, the envelope, if you will, by virtue of which a tremendous amount of beneficence and blessing can be received. So we actually have something to gain from betochen. Betochen does not only eliminate negativity, betochen brings us something that we wouldn't have otherwise. When he spoke about the benefits, Rabbeinu Bechaya was primarily speaking about how to prevent negativity. And here, he emphasizes you also gain much. The Paslechem here quotes a verse which the Chavis Halvavos has already quoted copiously. It's a verse from the book of Psalms. In the 33rd, 34th, pardon me, Psalm, the 11th verse, it says, Those who seek out God will not be lacking anything. Which indicates that we'll actually receive divine beneficence. We're going to gain or get something. So betochen frees us up, shields us. It removes all the negativity from before us, gets rid of the obstacles. 
And by virtue of betachen, we are able to receive a tremendous amount of blessing, blessing that we wouldn't receive otherwise. That's a big deal. And that's worthy of being spoken of almost in and of itself. So whilst Rabbi here is concluding and summarizing, he's talking about the structure of the book that will be, he does kind of mention that there is, as said, not only the removal of negativity, but an extremely positive reality that, that comes your way, that's brought to you by virtue of Yubatachim. So since all of this has already been said, Hana'is of the things you benefit in Torah, you'll receive a new understanding of Torah. You'll receive an infusion of greater closeness to Hashem and a feeling of heightened sensitivity and spirituality. And in the world, I have already kind of talked about all these things, worldly, spiritual, from the things that have come to mind. Nizdamen means kind of things that I've encountered. That is, I think, to say that the benefits lifted, listed are not necessarily all of the benefits that come your way or all of the advantages of Betochen. Rather, this is a sampling. This is, this is what occurred to me. Nizdamanli. So this is what occurred to him. And because this is what occurred to him, Rabbeinu Bechaya listed it, wanting to make the case. However... Now, if you're following in the Kihat version on page 35, now says Rabbeinu Bechaya, Avoyer ato me'inyin habitochen shivadvarim. I am now going to explain to you from the matters pertaining or, are, or, or, or related to betochen, I'm going to explain seven things. Now, I think it's really interesting that he doesn't tell you at this point that there's seven chapters in the book. Although, there are seven chapters. And the division of what he's going to explain to you perfectly patterns those seven chapters. It's not important to know that there are seven chapters in the book or 47 chapters in the book. What's important for us to know is here are seven areas of discovery and endeavor. Seven areas that will be covered. And when you go through these seven different topics, you'll see that Virtually everything you need to know about Betochen is going to be spoken about, clarified, amplified, elucidated, and communicated to you. And here's the order. Here's the matrix. And you soon find out that it actually is divided along these fault lines of seven chapters. But the important thing to know is that these are the keys to being able to unlock the matrix, to being able to open the gate and fully experience the knowledge that can be put into action insofar as what betachen is, how we develop it, troubleshooting the seeming paradoxes, and how we answer those who come with a different approach, as you'll see. So let's talk about, let's talk about uh, the, fir- the first one. Let's, let's now go in order. The Shiva Dvarim, the seven keys. Echad Mehem, the first one. Mahu habetochen. What is it? We've talked about betochen. We haven't actually defined it. That's important because when you're in pursuit of something, when you desire something, 
It's critical that you actually identify what it is you're seeking, what it is you desire. What is it? The Beit HaBachai says, we're going to talk about that. Definitions, they come first. Ma heim, what is it? Ma hu Vahasheni, and the second thing, after talking about what is betochen, besibois habitochen al habiruim. This is a little bit unwieldy, the verbiage. So besibois habitochen, he translates it here in the Kat version as the causes that enable a person to trust in another. He doesn't speak about whether that trust is directed towards God or to another person. Because before we talk about trust in Hashem, we have to know, first of all, what is trust? And secondly, what engenders or causes or brings about trust? Why does he talk about betochen al habruim, trust in others? If it's bruim, if it's created entities, it's clearly not Hashem. Why would we speak about the meaning or the need or cause for trust in others when this is about betochen and Hashem? It's a good question. I, I looked to the commentaries to try to understand what Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar was even trying to say here. Why did he emphasize that the part two is going to be focused on what exactly causes, what triggers this idea called betochen. So let's begin with a look in the Toiv Halavonen, who says, what Rabbeinu Bechaya means to say here is, ma'heim ho'inyonim ha'moyrin ha'betochen. What would be an indicator of trust? So sometimes we can talk about what it is, but what it is isn't hard to identify. What indicates the trust? If I trust you, I would fill in the blanks. So I'm not really defining trust, I'm almost defining the fringe benefits, the side effects, the symptoms, the indicators. What are they? In a certain sense, it's not defining the thing itself, but it's framing it. It's very important to frame a picture or a narrative or an idea because by contrast, it brings out with greater clarity the positive definition that we seek to present. So that's the Toiv Halvonen's perspective. The issue here is framing the definition framing trust. However, the Menoyah Chalavovis puts it a little bit differently. He says that the Sibas Habitochen that we speak about is quite literal, not indicators, but what are the catalysts? Mohem Sibas Habitochen. Why would a person trust somebody else? <laughs> Do you ever meet a person who says, trust me? And you think to yourself, I don't trust that guy. One wise person once said to me, anybody who says, trust me, says, I don't trust him. Why would he have to say that? 
it's almost like a red flag. Trust me. If a person trusts you, they trust you. If you don't trust me, don't trust me. You just, just trust me on this. Why? And why do we actually trust certain people? In the United States, there was a television anchor. This is really for my, 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 my pre-childhood. I heard people speak about him. I didn't have a television, so I never watched this, and I didn't even know what he looks like. But people used to talk about Walter Cronkite. And they said that people trusted Walter Cronkite. He was an anchor on ABC or CBS News, and people trusted him. Why did they trust him? What about him made people believe him? <laughs> this may come as a surprise to you, but people trusted Bill Clinton. They really did. There was, a, there was something trusting about him. So that was misplaced trust, I think, because he turned out to be an extremely dishonest person. And even when he was lying about something, about his own personal affairs, he was saying, trust me. But what is it that makes us trust other people? Who cares? This is not another person. This is God. Uh, Rabbeinu Bachaya is going to tell us, Trust is part of the human experience. I don't know how to say trust in other languages, but I'm quite certain that in every language, there is a word or term for trust. Just as there's a word and term for love, fear, anxiety, concern, it's part of the human experience. So let's not just identify or define trust objectively. Let's define this subjectively. What makes me trust? What brings me to trust? And when I understand how I trust or you trust, how we trust others, we'll understand how we can come to trusting Hashem. You know, all of humanity is obligated to be engaged with the Creator of heaven and earth. It's not just for Jewish people. The Mishnah says, Rabbi Akiva taught, Chaviv Adam, a person is cherished because he's created B'Tselem Elikim in the image, proverbially and metaphorically speaking, of God. It's not a commentary on a person's jowls or cheekbones, his nose or her eyes. As Maimonides says, it speaks about the consciousness or spirit of a person. Only people are, if you will, given that ability to analyze things, to make decisions. Only we have a sense of self-consciousness. We're able to remove ourselves from a situation. Even the most clever of animals can't think outside of its needs. It focuses on its needs. 
It knows how to get. It has a knack, an instinct for the hunt or survival. It knows how to get what it needs, but it doesn't see things in an objective, a pure sense. It sees them vis-a-vis itself. It either perceives something as a threat or lunch, or it's irrelevant, doesn't notice it. But we can perceive things that aren't a threat or necessarily nourishing. We can develop intricate theories, theses. We can write poetry. We can express ourselves in a variety of ways and understand and have an, an, an apprehension of a, a wide range of things that don't necessarily affect us. Interestingly, one of the important endeavors in studying Torah properly, especially Hasidus, is not getting caught up in the objectivity of the idea, but ultimately relating it back to you. So how does it change me? What does it mean to me? Personalizing it. We have a very easy time of looking at things in an objective fashion or how they're meaningful for somebody else. There's a famous story told of a, a fellow who would read inspiring things, but he was a preacher. And he would always say, ah, this is great. I can't wait to share this. And somebody said to him, you know, you're always sharing ideas or trying to inspire everybody else. But what about you? What does it say to you? And he said, wow, that's a great thought. I can't wait to share it with somebody else. So when it comes to Torah, we're supposed to almost overcome or transcend our nature, which is not to see things in a personal way. We love to discover fascinating facts and figures. We, we, we are excited to uncover secrets, even if it doesn't really make a difference to me. Much of academia is focused on just knowledge, just becoming educated, just becoming aware of things. So the Menor Halavava says that if we're going to succeed at Betochen, we have to understand how we react to things, how we function. And then we'll learn how to find Betochen in our Kodesh Baruch The Marpil and Nefesh takes it in, seems to me, a bit of a different direction. He says, when we speak about trust, or the things that inspire trust, if we would find certain qualities, qualifications, even in another person, then we could trust that person too. We all trust people. You trust people with your secrets, you trust people with your welfare. What is it that enables me or even inspires me to trust somebody else. That's what should inspire me to trust Hashem. And that's really how it's translated here in the Kahas edition. The things that cause, or the causes that enable a person to trust in another. If it enables me to trust another person, now I simply need to redirect my focus and instead trust Hashem. 
there is a very different approach to these words that is advanced by the Ned of Akkadish. He says, this idea of the Sibas Habitochem, Alabruyim, the cause or reason for trust in other creatures. He says, what he means to say is, by virtue of what would a person trust? And then, once a person knows of, by virtue of what would a person trust, or what makes a person suitable to trust, if you'll look carefully, and you'll think about why I really should trust you likely will find that in the end there's nobody you can really rely on there's nobody you can put your full trust in except for Hashem in other words the criteria by focusing on or identifying the criteria that would theoretically give us a basis for placing full trust in human beings, having no anxiety or worry whatsoever, because I can rely on somebody else, will show us that no human being actually meets that criteria, save Hashem. Because every person can have the best of intentions. It doesn't mean that he or she is going to follow through. So you can never really rely on somebody else. You can rely on somebody else to the best of your ability, but that will, in the end, only lead you back to relying on Hashem Yisbaruch, to trusting the Creator and the Creator alone. Moving on to the third dimension, the Hashlishi. And the third thing is, Beveur HaHakdomais to explain or clarify the prerequisites. What is it that necessitates trust in Hashem? Why am I obligated to trust Hashem? And then, once I talk about why I need to trust Hashem, well, because everything comes from Hashem. Well, in that case, why do I need to deal with the real world? It's like a catch-22. If I rely on Hashem, I rely on Hashem. If I rely on my efforts or other people's promises, then I'm not relying on Hashem. And here we're touching on, I suppose, what you would call a paradox. And the paradox is that a person is obligated to engage in the means to earn a livelihood, despite the fact that he's actually relying on Hashem to provide him with a livelihood. So, if, if I rely on Hashem, well then, I rely on Hashem. As the past Lechem puts it, A person is obligated along with betochen and trust in Hashem to engage 
in business transactions, in a vocation, in a profession. So that that should be a seeming cause for livelihood, for sustenance. From Hashem. He shouldn't sit on his hands. Well, I'm relying on God. God will take care of me. Yeah, God will take care of you. God takes care of me. God definitely does take care of you. Well, in that case, why do I need to make any efforts? So for some people, it's a bit of a paradox to catch 22. If, if God's providing, then I need to make no effort. If I need to make effort, clearly it's because I need to make this happen. So which is it? The answer is both. And if it seems paradoxical, it's something that needs to be explained. In other words, the Yiddishkeit attitude towards life, which at once emphasizes the critical and foundational importance of absolute trust and reliance on Hashem, and at the same time emphasizes the critical and foundational need for us to do what it takes to make a living, if you really think about it, seems contradictory. I will address that, says Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar. Good point. It has to be explained. It will be explained. This is what we're going to deal with. As the Nedar Bakaydish puts it, Ha'adam Mechuyov. A person is obligated. Lachzer, Ulisabev, Al Sibas Tarpe. To seek out and to cleverly plan and strategize how he intends to make a living and get all of his other needs. And then Hashem blesses you. But why would Hashem do that? If Hashem is going to give it to me anyway, why do I need to go through the motions? And we all know that there are times when we make tremendous efforts and come up empty-handed. And times when very little efforts are made and miraculous deliverance. So why did Hashem require me to make the best effort if the efforts I made were not even the ones that brought success? That's a great question. We're going to deal with that. This is embodied in the words of the Chumash, the Pentateuch itself, Deuteronomy 15, verse 18, where Moshe Rabbeinu says, Hashem asher tasa. God will bless you in all that you do. In all that you do. You need to do your part. You know, when the IDF, the Jewish forces, captured Yerushalayim, or I should say retook Yerushalayim, our eternal capital city, there were a number of rather shocking events that took place that led to the reassumption of Jewish sovereignty of Yerushalayim. One was tremendous bravery and devotion that was exhibited by Chayel Etzva in an area called Ammunition Hill, Givata Tachmoshet, which yielded no practical results. And Achman snuffed out many innocent lives. Many, many young soldiers were lost, and they really had nothing to show for it. And yet, the relatively unreasonable, if you will, attack on the Lion's Gate, including a tank getting stuck 
in the actual doorway or area or entranceway yielded the most stunning of results, where literally minutes later they had reassumed the control of the Harabayat. And like you, you take a look at this, you say the Israeli soldiers had to do what they did. That was the logical way that the city might be reassumed or recaptured. It was the logical way. We had very good generals. We had very good strategists who were dealing with the possibility of horrific urban warfare and a lot of innocent lives, a lot of non-combatants. It's in the middle of crowded residential area with tiny alleyways. And yet, and yet where they placed the emphasis on the fighting, there was no gain. And where they didn't even imagine they could succeed, they succeeded wildly. I don't know if this is true, but I was told that in the West Point, which is the academy for higher officers or leadership in the United States Army, they study battles. And the young Jewish soldier, American soldier, once asked the instructor why of all the recent battles studied, why they don't study the battle to retake Jerusalem in 1967, to which the instructor responded, we don't study it because it doesn't make any sense to us. We don't believe we can learn how to better engage in urban warfare from a battle that is off the charts. It doesn't add up. The truth is that Hashem's miracles accompany us every single moment of our lives. We've talked about this in previous episodes, and we'll talk about it much, much more, especially when we get to chapter 3. And despite the fact that our efforts may not be the thing that yields us success, we are required to put our best foot forward and make every reasonable effort. And at the same time, be fully mindful that it's it's the blessing that comes from on high. But at the same time, to be absolutely committed to doing the best we can do. And making all the reasonable investments. And it sounds paradoxical. And at some level it even is. But it's the definition or application of the Torah requirement for us to at once trust implicitly and yet do our part. And Abayna Bahaya will reconcile and explain why in the end there is no paradox and there is no contradiction. Haravi, moving right along now into the fourth methodology. Explaining the things that a person should employ betochen for. And the obligation, if you will, to do things that betochen requires or when betochen is appropriate or praiseworthy. And when? It is simply not. That is to say, many people confuse betochen with stupidity. <laughs> you forgive me for being blunt. We have this idea that 
Pesiyam and a fool believes. Well, we don't really mean a fool. It's not foolish to believe, but it's foolish to misplace belief. So if you have reasonable concerns, to dismiss those concerns, well, let's have betachen. I'm going to have betachen. Is inappropriate. It's actually downright foolish. It's wrong. I'll give you a simple example. I know that some of you have gone bungee jumping. You may be planning to do it again. I'm going to tell you it's a bad idea. Why? The Torah proscribes us from taking risks. As one entry in the Talmud states, when you put yourself in a risk situation where, where you require a special level of divine intervention, you're asking for judgment. As a rule, we are not supposed to endanger ourselves. So a person will say, I have no problem bungee jumping. Yeah, skydiving, I have betachen. Response would be, betachen has nothing to do with that. The question you should ask is, am I allowed to do this or not? Betachen is not part of that equation. If a person is in a situation where he or she is faced with a set of circumstances and there's no choice, the soldier is going into combat. It's a moral war. It's mandated. And they're able to steal their nerves and calm their apprehension because they have betochen. That's extremely praiseworthy. That's what betochen is about. A person is going into surgery. Calm themselves. I have betochen and Hashem. Torah requires that when it comes to medical issues, we speak to medical professionals. Spoke to a medical professional. There's a Torah idea of getting more than one opinion, I've got a second opinion. There's a Torah idea of being engaged with a medical professional who actually cares about you, for whom you are just not just a statistic or a number, for whom your welfare is not merely academic. It's called a refi did. And after having done all those things, followed the advice of our rabbis and our sages, the Rebbe would tell people, get a second opinion. Got a second opinion. Refi did. Refi did. And the decision is that this is the procedure that has to be done. You're ridden with worry and anxiety. Torah says, get rid of that. Toss it out. You need to be calm. First of all, you'll be riddled with anxiety, and that does nothing good for you. Secondly, betochen brings the bracha. It brings the blessing. So there's a place for betochen. And then there is misplaced betochen, or foolish betochen. Sometimes it can be clear, and sometimes it can be nuanced. It has to be discussed. Rabbeinu Bachaya assures us that that will be the focus of his fourth platform. As we move forward in this idea 
of the obligation, if you will, to have betochen, or when betochen is what we call praiseworthy. I want to direct your attention to the way the Menoya Chalavavis frames it, or how he elucidates it. He says, min yesh What kind of betochen is worth praising or singing about? min yesh And what kind of betochen is an embarrassment? It's the opposite of a virtue, a demerit. It's important for us to know that. The Marpala Nefesh suggests that it gets detailed. He says, when it comes to a person's physical health or sustenance, there are different kinds of betochen. There are circumstances where betochen applies and circumstances where it doesn't. And then he says, there are circumstances where betochen is totally misplaced. And those are not the material areas of life, but rather, those are the mitzvah arenas. The dimensions that require us to make a choice. person says, well, I'm going to have betochen. I'm sure I'll make the right choices. Really? How are you so sure? After all, everything is in heaven's hands with the exception of the choices you need to make. So a person might say, I'm, I'm worried about making the right choice. I want to do the right thing. Another person says, meh, what are you worried about? Betochen! You just trust in Hashem and make any which choice. Which the Marple in Ephesus says, is foolish. The opposite of a virtue. He also suggests that if a person is entitled... I trust that Hashem will take care of me because I deserve to be taken care of. I've given my pledge on my charity and God needs to take care of me now. Bad idea, says the Marpilah Nefesh. That might in fact bring you the opposite of Hashem's bracha. Entitlement is never a good idea, especially when it comes to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Moshe Rabbeinu himself, Pray to Hashem in a manner of etchanan, matnas chinam. He didn't say, hey God, I deserve this. He said, I deserve nothing, Rabbeinu Shalom. I'm not entitled to anything, but I beseech you. And so too, our betochen should not be based on, I deserve this, but rather, Hashem loves me, not because I earned it, and I rely on Him. Moving along now. Hachamishi, the fifth platform is Bahafresh Sheyesh Ben Eisek Habitech Belikim Besibes Hateref U Ben Eisek Misha Eini Betech Belikim Bohem. Is there really a difference, a differentiation between the trusting person who does his or her work? and the non-trusting person who does his or her work. In other words, in the end, you have to make the best investment, work wisely, 
appropriately, diligently? What's the difference then? What practical difference would we be able to discern by seeing here's a person with betochen making a living and here's a person with no betochen making a living? This person says, I rely on myself. I'm not relying on God for anything. The other person says, I rely on God for everything. I don't rely or trust in myself at all. But practically, they're doing the exact same thing. It's important for us to be able to make a differentiation because if this is so important, common logic would then tell us that there needs to be a distinction, a huge difference between these seemingly different pathways of life. But when we think about it, based on what we just said previously, if you always have to put your best foot forward, and you can only have betachan in certain areas, realistically, do these people's paths in life look any different from one another? It's certainly interesting to note that when we speak about, you know, this, uh, this hafresh or this distinction that's being drawn, that it, it does have practical application. <laughs> that is to say, do I do anything different having betachen? Does, does, does it have a a practical difference? Or is it exactly the same? It seems on the surface that it couldn't have a difference. That misplaced betochen is actually inappropriate. So what difference does it make? I understand it's a difference in attitude. It's a difference in perspective. Maybe in inner peace and allowing for blessing to come my way, but we should be able to see a distinction between these two paths. Oh, there is. But that's to be discovered. Vahashishi, moving right along the sixth dimension of platform, explaining the method or the manner in which we must criticize, undermine, or refute those who say that I will first luxuriate, immerse myself in achieving the things I want to achieve. And then I will develop or aspire to live a spiritual life once I've taken care of things. Once I've reached my level, once, once I finish making the money I want to make, once I have my savings, my RSPs, once my life's in place, once I don't have to trust God anymore for sustenance, then I can worship God. They are those who they seem to take collateral. What does that mean? In Bali Hamashkoinis.
Rebbe Freyim Zalman Magolis once wrote that what Rebbeinu Bechaya talks about here is people who can't find any, talk about inner quiet or respite or peace until they've taken care of themselves first. They say, I gotta take care of myself first. Uh, how about God? How about the obligations? So let's, let's look at My first obligation is to me. After I take care of me, I'll take care of God too. Once I know that I have what I need, once I know I've gotten my bases covered, my I's are, are dotted, my T's are crossed, I'm, I'm taken care of. And I can say, so now, what does God want from me? But I first need to take care of myself. How would it sound if a mother would say, I first need to take care of myself, then I'll think about my children. How would it sound in a marriage if a spouse says, first I take care of me. When I'm finished taking care of me, I'll see if there's something I can do for you. It doesn't sound like a recipe for a successful marriage. We're in a marriage with God. We should be worried about our lover, about Hashem. The good news is that if we worry about Hashem, Hashem will worry about and take care of us. Our anxiety or concern, our worry should be, am I up to par in my study of Torah? Is my tefillah adequate? I'm concerned about these things. How about concerns like, how's my financial situation? How can I ensure my health in the midst of a pandemic? I'm worried. Well, you take the steps that are necessary. You're going to try to make a living and try to shield and protect yourself. But you won't worry about those things. You worry about your Torah study and your davening and your mitzvah observance and that you'll trust Hashem for. That's essentially what we're talking about. Now, this sounds like... um, very interesting verbiage. Chiyuv ganois. Ganois is really to put down, to disparage. We have an obligation to disparage others, an obligation to criticize them, to put down their way of life. What's going on here? <laughs> that sounds very Canadian. We just like to mind our own business. So I identified three different approaches to this. Let me share them with you in the order that made sense to me. The Pas Lechem, he speaks about this, it seems to me, not as in a critique for others, but rather as an attitude. You need to know that's wrong. Because if I think that's right, then I'm going to do that. So I need to know for myself that that attitude is inappropriate. I don't have to judge anybody. I don't have to criticize anybody. But I need to know what's right and what's wrong. The Paslechem's words are, the disparaging, the, the withering critique of those who might say. He says, this is a logical thing. Logically speaking, in our minds, we need to refute that approach. In our minds, we need to know that's wrong. Maybe people of trust 
sitting around the table at a fabreng and have to talk about. That's not right. We shouldn't be doing it that way. What are you, delay serving Hashem until you first serve yourself? You came into this reality to serve Hashem. First you have to focus on, what does Hashem need me here for? There's a beautiful story which is brought down in Hayom Yom, a, a vignette of a chassar who came to the Alter Rebbe and he had a laundry list, a shopping list of all these things he needed. I need, I need, I need, I need. I'm not saying this judgmentally. He was a person who was beset with challenges, what we would call in English problems. He needed to, to marry a child off. He needed to pay his bills. He needed to, to, to send a, a, a child to school. He had, he had real issues. Real, real problems. And Alter Rebbe reviews the list. And he said to him, Du sagst als, was du darfst. All I hear about is the things you need. But nowhere in your letter did you mention, avos darf min dirham, why you are needed. Hashem needs you. Of course Hashem needs you. If Hashem didn't need you, you wouldn't exist. There's a master plan. And the, all of the trillions and quadrillions of details interacting are all necessary. Nothing in our world is superfluous. As our sages put it, nothing was created without a purpose. How often do people ask themselves, what's my purpose? What am I doing here? Why does God need me? Couldn't the world function perfectly well without me? If you don't know why God needs you, if you feel like an extra finger, an unneeded accoutrement, you got a problem. First of all, psychologically, it's not healthy for a person to feel unwanted or unnecessary. Secondly, that means that all you're thinking about is what you need rather than what you need it for. So the Paslechem says it's really important to look at people who are living a life like that and say, what kind of life is that? What kind of attitude is that? What kind of approach is that? And if you don't look at it that way, then in the end, you might easily be drawn after that kind of approach. People who says, as long as every lust and every libido and every desire and every issue and every concern is all taken care of, and I should have nothing to worry about. I'm, I'm as they say in Yiddish, I'm guaranteed I've taken care of everything. Oh, now I can think about serving Hashem. How do people say it today? Rabbi, when I retire, I'll start coming to show. Because now I have to work. Now I have to do. It's impossible that Hashem would enable me to serve Hashem and serve myself. So when I finish serving myself and I have free time, extra time, then I can devote my life to hobbies and passions, to extra things. But Yiddishkeit is not an extra thing, my friends. Avoidus Hashem 
isn't secondary, it's primary. The Paslechem says these people are called Bale Mashkainis because what they actually lack is trust. What's a mashkin? C- collateral. So Ruvain asks Shimon for a loan. And Shimon says, hmm, it's a lot of money. How do I know you're going to repay the $20,000 you're asking for? And Ruvain might say, well, I have this uh, very valuable family heirloom. I'll give it to you as collateral. That's really important to me. Firstly, if I default, you can always sell it. Secondly, it's something that I value and treasure. I don't want to sell it, but I need the money now. So I'm putting it up as surety. But if Shimon would trust Ruuvain, would he ask him for collateral? Of course not. He trusts him. The reason he asks of collateral because he doesn't trust him. So a person says, I can't serve Hashem tomorrow until I know I have collateral, until I know that I'm already taken care of. In other words, I have no trust that Hashem will provide me with what I need. He says, this person is first taking the mashkin. And that's a big problem. So the past lechem's approaches, you're not criticizing anybody. You're, you're knowing yourself, what's right and what's wrong. People love to say that they're non-judgmental. What does that mean? We make judgment calls every minute of our lives. Who we want to do business with and who we don't want to do business with. Who people want to date and who they don't want to date. Who they want to be friends with and who they don't want to be friends with. Which part of the menu they want to order and which part they don't. Where they want to go on vacation and where they don't. Which route they'll take and which route they'll avoid. The list goes on. We're making judgment calls all day long. Who my children should have a play date with and whose house I don't want my children in. A parent who doesn't act judiciously is acting recklessly. If you know that there's a problem individual in that home, why would you expose your child to danger? So we're always making judgments. What is the meaning then of being non-judgmental? It means I am not judging that person as evil, objectively speaking. I can say that person is sad, tragic, unfortunate. I would do worse if I was them, if I'd be in their circumstances. I'm not judging them. That's God's job. I'm judging the circumstance, not the individual. We should never be judgmental of individuals. We should never condemn individuals. We should always be judgmental of circumstances and judiciously avoid things which are toxic for us and choose things which are healthy and salutary towards fulfilling our mission, our purpose in life. So if you're not going to know what's wrong with something, how would you avoid it? How would you choose not to behave that way, especially because it's intuitive? The Marper Lenefesh explains this a little bit differently. He says, Chiyuv Shivche Viganuse means, sorry, the Biur Chiyuv Eifen Ganos Das. He says, 
It doesn't mean you have to criticize. Ech roi leganois das hachoshvim. How it's appropriate, how, you, how it's suitable to make a judgment call about that circumstance, about that attitude or approach or way of life. He doesn't say you have to criticize anybody. He says it's worthy of criticism. It's critique worthy. It's, it's judgmental worthy. People who spend their time pursuing their own personal desires and fulfilling their own sensual libido. Then they'll say, well, you know, God did give me a life, so maybe I should do something for God too. Maybe there's a reason for my existence, and it wasn't just about me. These people are called Bali Mashkoines because they want to take a collateral as if from God. So I'll pay you back later, God. I'll pay you back later. But first, first let me make sure I'm taken care of. So he says that's why it's like they're taking a mashkin from God. Eventually I'll pay back. It's a little bit of a different approach. It is worthy of criticism. It's critique worthy, he says. The Marpala Nefesh is sharply contrasted, I think, by the Nedebar Kodesh. The Nedebar Kodesh understanding of Rabbeinu Bahaya's words much sharper. Nedebar Kodesh says, Heich onu mechuyovim. We are obligated to criticize. Not the individuals, but the attitude, the approach. It's mandated that we speak out against the wrong behavior. In other words, to say, Our days are like a fleeting shadow. Flies right by. And these people are saying that we should first make our millions, fulfill our desires, prepare everything we need for an enjoyable, pleasurable, comfortable, materially fulfilling life. And Hedda says, these people are kind of boxed in with their materialism. They're stuck in their material pursuit. They're stuck in self-gratification and self-fulfillment and self-service. He says people who are only willing to serve God if it comes at no great personal cost, if it comes with no great effort, if it's part of my enjoyable, nice life. If it makes me feel good. After I've taken care of all my material concerns, now I'll seek spiritual self-actualization. Then he says, then they'll serve God without any burdens. No problem, then I'll serve God. They are the Bale Mashkenes, he says. They are the collateral takers. He says, Mashkoinois, read it. They believe and trust 
Nobody unless they first get collateral. No loans for you. I trust nobody. I'm in business. Put up a collateral, put up surety, no problem. So you come to them and say, serve the Rebbein Shalelam. Serve God. And what's the response? Um, what's my guarantee? How do I know that it's going to be profitable or valuable? How do I know it's going to make me feel good? How do I know it's going to light my candle? How do I know it's going to yank my chain? Jingle my bells? How do I know? How do I know? I first need to know if and after I know that this is good for me and it works for me and I like it, then we'll discuss it. In the end, we'll serve Hashem a little. He says, this is the words in the Mishnah. Don't say when I have time. That's when I'll study Torah. Because oftentimes, you never find the time. People invariably plan to serve Hashem when they have time. So often, that time never comes. Or they finally stop working and now they're busy with other things. Winston Churchill once said, if you want something to get done, give it to a busy person. There's wisdom to that. Those who find time to serve Hashem when they're busy will have time to serve Hashem when they're at leisure. And those who don't find time to make time for God when they're busy, somehow, when things are leisurely, they can't find the time either. We should be vocal about that. We should call it out. We should rail against it. The Nedeb HaKadosh believes that Rabbeinu Bachaya meant what he said and said what he meant. Chiyuv ganais das ha'imrim. He didn't say chiyuv ganais ha'imrim. He didn't say criticize the people. He said criticize das, criticize the attitude of those who say. The Rebbe never spoke against individual or judged people. But he was very forceful in condemning and refuting and criticizing ideas that were unhealthy and toxic and didn't lead towards a greater sense of spiritual fulfillment. So this is the sixth platform, the sixth arena of our betachen. It's not enough to just know what's right. It's important for us to also identify and know what's downright wrong. Vashvi, and the seventh. You know, before I go on to the seventh way, something came to mind, I want to share it. It is said that the Hasidic master of Menachem Mendel of Kotsk, the Kotsker, the Kotsker once came into Shul and he said, where is the child the world is waiting for? When will he finally be born? And he went on like this. And people said, Rebbe, what are you talking about? Which, which, Mashiach, Mashiach, which child? He says, I'm, in, I'm up to my third generation, he says. When I first started out as a Magid, trying to encourage people to devote themselves to service of Hashem, they said, Rebbe, I have no time, I have no time, I have to make a living. They're making a living, it's for the kinder, he says, I have to work for my children, it's not for me, it's my family. 
It's for my family. That's what I tell them. It's for the family. It's for the children. He says, the children grew up, and I saw the children following the same path, and I'd come, and I'd say, come, and immerse yourself in Avedis Hashem. Devote yourself to a higher cause. And I said, Rabbi, it's for the family. It's for the children. He says, now already it's a third generation. He was an older Magid, the older Rebbe, and he's getting the same story. He says, so when is the child already going to be born? Generation after generation is working alts for the kinder. I'm working for the children. He says, so when does the child get born finally? For whom everybody worked so that he can serve Hashem. How obvious. How obvious is it that this is a wrong-headed approach? Avedis Hashem is not a privilege to be exercised in the event that you're not busy with anything else. It's not a luxury. It's a basic staple. It's the very purpose, the essence of life itself. What will I eat tomorrow? Ah. The Tochen makes a world of difference. Vashvi. On to the seventh and final dimension. Rabbeinu Bechaya says, we're on page 37 now, I will explain the things that undermine, that disable a person from achieving betochen and Hashem. Because there are certain things that don't allow people to develop that betochen. So this uh, basically is about Overcoming the obstacles, pointing out the obstacles. What are the issues one has to deal with or be mindful of? Because otherwise, you'll slip and trip. That'll be the thing that stops you from attaining the betachin you seek. And Rabbeinu Bechaya finishes off, and in this will be included, kol there's be a lot of things that have to be said about betachin. There are a lot of things about betachin that don't fit into any of the previous six dimensions. In the end, <laughs> we'll deal with everything. You know, there's this beautiful teaching that when the Jewish people would travel through the desert, so the, the tribe, the Shevet, called Dan, they were the kabus, they were the last ones to bring up the rear, and it said they were ma'asif lochalamachnes, they would gather together all of the in camping. So what does it mean they would gather together? So the Gemara tells us they, they would make a sweep of the area before the Jewish people left a particular geography in which they were encamping. People leave stuff behind. So Dunn's special task was to do the final sweep. So always something left behind. So you have to be concerned with what's left behind. We're at the end. Rebbeinu B'chai has identified seven keys to unlocking the gates to Betach, and he says, the last key is also going to be miscellaneous. There are some things that don't fit into a particular dimension. Things that have to be said in closing. Important things. That emphasize and show us and teach us how to have betachem. They'll be included at the end. And finally, the Beno Bechaya says, ultimately to provide you with a summary, a synopsis, of everything at the end. Because sometimes when we develop things at great length, they need to be summarized. And the summary is kind of making a, a tally, 
So in the end, what is the essence of betachen? And oftentimes after luxuriously developing an idea and a thesis, you have to be able to boil it into a few simple words. This is what they call in English a mission statement. A lot of thought goes into who am I? What is our purpose? What is our goal? What is not the kind of thing we want to be involved in? And then you bring it down into a few precise words that can only best be appreciated when you go through the whole, so to speak, process of developing and articulating and fully appreciating the length and the breadth of the ideas being discussed. This, my dear friends, are the seven keys. We'll be breaking at this point. We'll focus on the teachings that will uplift and energize our observance of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, our spiritually saturated month of Tishrei. But when the Yom Him Tovim end, we will return to Betachem basics as we move away, Be'ezrat Hashem, through this remarkable illuminated manuscript, the Shara Betochen, that can and will, Emerz Hashem, teach us how to actualize our faith and live with total trust in Hashem Yisbarach. I trust that you've enjoyed the episodes till here, and I hope that Bezrat Hashem, you'll continue to stay with us as we learn different things and, of course, return when Betachen continues in our coming episodes. Thank you for joining. Have a beautiful day. If you found this interesting or inspiring, please hit the like button and take a moment to share it with your friends or people you think might be interested. And if you haven't, please subscribe and enable notifications, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan, God bless you, and have a beautiful day.